Welcome to Strange Talk. Hey, strangers, welcome to a new episode of the year of This Week in Crime. Um, if you're not familiar with This Week in Crime, it's basically a midweek thing that I do every Wednesday. Um, where I bring you strange news articles or interesting news articles from around the world or just here in good old America. And we just talk about the weird fucking <laughs> shit that goes on in the world. Uh, so I'm joined by a special guest. Uh, he, well, actually we have an announcement to make. Uh, I host another pot. Well, I used to host, but I technically still do, I guess. I host another podcast called Talk Nerdy to Me. And recently, because we are able to just, you know, uh, finally get have the time and make time for it, we're going to be bringing back uh, Talk Nerdy to Me. So I'm actually joined by my co-host that was on Talk Nerdy to Me. Uh, he was known on there as Ribsauce710. Uh, so go ahead and say hey. What's up, everybody? It's Ribsauce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that just sounded funny. I don't know what to say. <laughs> it just sounded funny to me for some reason. <laughs> so before I get into um, this week in crime, I have a segment for you. I have an interesting case that I wanted to bring to you guys. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you guys will find it interesting. But basically submitted for your approval by the Midnight Society, I call this case The Feral Child. And if you got that reference, you know, hit me up on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast and say, yo, what's up? I watched that show too. So um, this story, well, this case actually really did happen and it happened in the 50s. Um, it's about a little girl. You kn nobody knows her actual real name. Her name wasn't actually publicly known, um, but she went by the name Jeannie. So... You know, basically, this is the story about her. So Jeannie was born in 1957 to father Clark Wiley, and there's no name for her mother that she remains basically unknown. Um, so Clark Wiley was Jeannie's father, and Clark Wiley never wanted children. He made that pretty adamant that he didn't want children. So uh, when Jeannie was born, he felt that she suffered from severe mental disability and because of that he treated her really different compared to her other siblings um, so much so that he socially isolated her from them he would not allow them to talk to her and her talk to them and he would keep her in her room and actually tie her up to her bed and not let her get up and because of this he started this from when she was about 20 months and because of this, she never learned how to verbally communicate. And the only way she could communicate was by grunting noise or acting as though she was an animal because he would not talk to her and he would not like give her any type of love, things that a child needs. So basically, Jeannie is a pseudonym of an American fair child who was the victim of severe abuse, neglect, and social isolation. Her circumstances are prominently recorded in the Annals of Linguistics and Abnormal Child Psychology. When she was just a baby, her father concluded that she had severe intellectual disability, a view which intensified as she got older, causing him to dislike her and withhold care and attention. At approximately the time she reached the age of 20 months, he decided to keep her as socially isolated as possible as a result of this belief. 
so he kept her locked alone in a room from the time until she reached the age of 13 years old. During this time, he almost always kept her strapped to a child's toilet or bound her in a crib with her arms and legs completely immobilized and forbid anyone from interacting with her, provided her with almost no stimulation of any kind and left her severely malnourished. The extent of the isolation prevented her from being exposed to any significant amount of speech, and she did not acquire language during her childhood as a result. Her abuse came to the attention of Los Angeles Child Welfare Authorities on November 4, 1970. In the first several years after Jeannie's early life and circumstances came to light, psychologists, linguists, and other scientists focused a great deal of attention on Jeannie's case, seeing in her near-total isolation a unique chance to study many aspects of human development. Upon determining that Jeannie had not yet learned language, linguists saw Jeannie as providing an opportunity to gain further insight into the process controlling language acquisition skills, and to test theories and hypotheses identifying critical periods during which humans learn to understand and use language. Throughout the time scientists studied Jeannie, she made substantial advances in her overall mental and psychological development. Within months of being discovered, Jeannie had developed exceptional nonverbal communication skills and gradually learned some basic social skills. But even by the end of their case study, she still exhibited many behavioral traits characteristic of an unsocialized person. She also continued to learn and use new language skills throughout the time they tested her, but ultimately remained unable to fully acquire a first language. So because of her social isolation, she basically never learned how to communicate perfectly verbally. She still would always revert back to being feral, like an animal. So she was like a caveman, almost. Pretty much, yeah. She basically was like a caveman. That's what I get from it. Like, Yeah, it, that's technically... Like living that's in a cave, all alone, mm-hmm. can't talk, just... You get excited if you see fire, get scared. <laughs> she gets excited when she sees fire. <laughs> well, I'm like, she has those feelings. I'm just feeling like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what she's going through. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> so basically, um, to give a little background about the father, uh, Jeannie was the last and second surviving of four children born to parents living in Arcadia, California. This is where it took place and where she was ultimately found by Los Angeles Welfare Protective Services for Children. Her father worked in a factory as a flight mechanic during World War II and continued in aviation afterward. And her mother, who was around 20 years younger and from an Oklahoma farming family, had come to Southern California as a teenager with family friends fleeing the Dust Bowl. During her early childhood, Jeannie's mother sustained a severe head injury in an accident giving her lingering neurological damage that caused degenerative vision problems in one eye. Jeannie's father mostly grew up in orphanages in the American Pacific Northwest. His father died as a result of a lightning strike, and his mother ran a brothel while only infrequently seeing him. Additionally, his mother gave him a feminine first name, which made him the target of constant bullying. (laughs) As a result, he harbored extreme resentment towards his mother during childhood, which Jeannie's brother and the scientists who study Jeannie believe was the root cause of his subsequent anger problems. When, yeah, so basically that's probably, well, I mean, that's probably a lot of where his anger stemmed from, and maybe that's why he treated Jeannie the way he treated all his other kids, because he had 
like three other kids, I think, or four other kids. I don't know if Jeannie's the fourth one. So, but she was a little different, right? Because like, yeah, her, her mental state wasn't all there. So, like an embarrassment, I guess. Like his name, he thought was an embarrassment, so he had to bully her out of it, I guess. No, pick on her. maybe, maybe, maybe he felt the like he took all the anger out that he had for his mom on her. Maybe that could be a reason why. So when Jeannie's father reached adulthood, he changed his first name to one which was more typically masculine, and his mother began to spend as much time with him as she could. He became almost singularly fixated on his mother, despite their relentless arguments about her attempts to convince him to adopt a less rigid lifestyle. He treated all other relationships as secondary at best. Although Jeannie's parents initially seemed happy to those who knew them, soon after they married, he prevented his wife from leaving home and beat her with increasing frequency and severity. Her eyesight steadily deteriorated due to lingering effects from the existing neurological damage. The onset of severe cataracts and detached retina in one eye, leaving her increasingly dependent on her husband. Jeannie's father disliked children and wanted none of his own, finding them noisy, but around five years into their marriage, his wife became pregnant. This child, an apparently healthy daughter, caught pneumonia at her father after her father found her cries disturbing and placed her in the garage and died at the age of 10 weeks. <laughs> Jeez. I, I'm sorry to laugh. It's just fucked up, but I oh my that, God. that's how I guess I cope. I guess with like <laughs> dark shit. But no, he basically because he didn't he didn't like her crying, so the asshole decided to take her the baby instead of like because he didn't want kids, and you know that fuck, dude, what an asshole. Their second child, born approximately a year later, was a boy diagnosed with RH incompatibility, which is basically. To try to say this, I guess the medical term, it's hemolactic disease of the newborn. Um, All right. Yeah. Who died at two days of age, <laughs> either from complications. I have no idea what that means. but I'm Well, right. if you want me to give more information about it, I guess I could. It's basically an alloimmune condition that develops in perpartum fetus when the IgG molecules produced by the mother pass through the placenta. So it's basically bacteria that enters the blood i think yeah so it's basically black bacteria that enters into the blood of a newborn or in the fetus from the placenta i wonder if that was common back then i probably i wouldn't be too surprised because you know nowadays our medical like our medicine is way advanced compared to 1950s yeah seriously so uh the baby died two days um wait at the Okay, let me. Okay. Was a boy diagnosed with RH incompatibility who died at two days of age, either from complications of RH incompatibility or from choking on his own mucus. Three years later, they had another son who doctors described as healthy despite also having RH incompatibility. His father forced his wife to keep him quiet, causing significant physical and linguistic developmental delays. When he reached the age of four, his maternal grandmother took over his care for several months, and he made good progress with her before she eventually returned him to his parents. So, on to Jeannie's early life, um, what it was like growing up before she was discovered by Child Protective Services. Jeannie was born about five years after her brother, around the time that her father began to isolate himself and his family from others. 
At birth, she was in the 50 percentile for weight. The following day, she showed signs of RH incompatibility and required a blood transfusion, but had no um, sequelae and was otherwise described as healthy. A medical appointment at three months showed that she was gaining weight normally, but found a congenital hip dislocation, which required her to wear a highly restrictive frictia split. I'm probably not even saying that. Frickja splint. Can't even tell you what that is. <laughs> <laughs> From the age of four and a half to 11 months, the splint caused Jeannie to be late to walk. And researchers believe this led her father to start speculating that she had an intellectual disability. As a result, he made a concentrated effort not to talk to or pay attention to her and strongly discouraged his wife and son from doing so as well. I imagine the way he probably discouraged them is by beating them severely. Yeah, he's like, I'll kill you if you talk to her. Yeah, he's like, you talk to her, I'll kill you. Smacks his son. You look at her. <laughs> you even fought in her direction. I swear to God, I'll beat you. <laughs> and she sneezes. You do not say bless you. <laughs> we don't say bless you in this home. <laughs> there, is, there is little information about Jeannie's early life, but available records indicate that for her first months, she displayed relatively normal development. Jeannie's mother later recalled that Jeannie was not a cuddle ba- baby and did not babble much and resisted solid food. At times, she said that at some unspecific point, Jeannie spoke individual words but could not recall them. But at other times, she said that Jeannie had never produced speech of any kind. Researchers never determined which was the truth. At the age of 11 months, Jeannie was still in overall good health and had no noted mental abnormalities, but had fallen to the 11th percentile of poor weight. The people who later studied her believed this was a sign that she was starting to suffer some degree of malnutrition, which Jeannie was 14 months old. She came down with a fever and pneumonitis, pneumonitis, I, yeah, that's what it says. And her, her <laughs> it's like an advanced form of pneumonia. I guess. It's like it's I like <laughs> it's like Pokemon. It's like stage two, like evol- like evolve. <laughs> it evolved. evolved from pneumonia to pneumonitis. You give her a bacteria stone, and she will evolve. A <laughs> bacteria stone. <laughs> her parents took her to a pediatrician who had not previously seen her. The pediatrician said that although her illness prevented a definitive diagnosis, there was a possibility that she had an intellectual disability. <laughs> Stupid bacteria stone. <clears throat> that she had an intellectual disability. Gotta infect them all. <laughs> Gotta infect them all. And that the brain dysfunction, commuteris, might be present. Um, I have no idea what commuteris Kernicterus. Dude, you're just speaking big words that I don't even understand. I know. <laughs> Kernicterus is a brubilian induced brain dysfunction. Uh, the term was coined in 1904 by Schmorl It is a naturally occurring substance in the body of humans and many other animals, but it is neurotoxic when its concentration in the blood is too high. Okay, so I guess that's what that is. Um, might be present, further amplifying her father's conclusion that she was severely intellectually disabled. Six months later, when Jeannie was 20 months old, her paternal grandmother died in a hit-and-run traffic accident. Jeez, there's just oh so much God. bad. There's so much bad luck for this family. 
Uh, her death affected Jeannie's father far beyond normal levels of grief, and because his son had been walking with her, he held his son responsible, basically blaming him for his mother's death. Further heightened his instead of her. I guess so. He's supposed to no and like push her and stop the car like a superhero or something. Yes, <clears throat> Captain America. Her. <laughs> when the truck's driver received only a promotion. Pro- probationary sentence for both manslaughter and drunk driving, Jeannie's father became delusional with rage. Scientists believe these events made him feel society had failed him and convinced him he would need to protect his family from the outside world, and that in doing so, he lacked the self-awareness to recognize the destruction his actions caused. Because he believed Jeannie was severely intellectually disabled, he thought she could require additional protection from him, and he, therefore, decided he needed to entirely hide her existence. He immediately quit his job and moved his family into his mother's two-bedroom house, where he demanded his late mother's car and bedroom be left completely untouched as shrines to her, and further isolated his family. Probably. Well, because he technically didn't have a great relationship. She was basically a prostitute because she was, yeah, she was a hooker. She was a hooker. So, upon moving, Jeannie's father increasingly confined Jeannie to the second bedroom in the back of the house while the rest of the family slept in the living room. During the daytime, for approximately 13 hours, Jeannie's father tied her to a child's toilet in a makeshift harness designed to function as a straitjacket. While in the <laughs> while in the harness, she wore only diapers and could only move for only move her extremities. At night, he usually tied her into a sleeping bag and placed her in a crib with a metal screen cover, keeping her arms and legs immobilized. And researchers believe that he sometimes left her on the child's toilet overnight. Jesus Christ, dude, that poor kid. Yes, she she endured fucking extreme conditions and just extreme basically form of like and you know what's weird i don't know if it's so much about like particularly her case she's endured so much abuse but she's not the first case of a feral child um there's been she's just technically because it happened in the 50s so it technically didn't happen that long ago yeah um but the other cases of feral children happened like I know one happened in the 1800s and somebody like a farmer just stumbled upon him because he was hunting and he happened to stumble upon this little kid who had really long hair was severely dirty. And when he walked to the child because he thought maybe the child was lost, the child started growling at him like a dog. Maybe he's a werewolf. Yeah, they consider they consider they called him the wolf child. That maybe, was, he maybe, maybe he has wolf blood. Maybe wolf blood. Maybe he's a werewolf. Researchers concluded that if Jeannie vocalized or made any other noise, her father beat her with a large plank that he kept in a room to keep her quiet. He bared his teeth and barked and growled at her like a wild dog and grew his fingernails out to scratch her. If he suspected her of doing something he did not like, he made these noises outside the door and beat her if he believed she had continued to do it instilling an intense and persistent fear of cats and dogs in Jeannie. No one definitively definitively discerned the exact reason for his dog-like behavior, although at least one scientist speculated he may have viewed himself as a guard dog and was acting out the role. As a result, Jeannie learned to make as little sound as possible and to otherwise give no outward expressions. 
Jeannie developed a tendency to masturbate in socially inappropriate contexts, which led doctors to... Yes, yes. I... You want me to read that again? Jeannie developed a tendency to masturbate in socially inappropriate contexts, which led doctors to seriously consider the possibility that Jeannie's father subjected her to sexual abuse or forced her brother to do so, although they never uncovered any definitive evidence. Jeannie's father fed Jeannie as little as possible and refused to give her solid food, feeding her only baby food, cereal, pablum. Pablum? I guess it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a food from the time. So Pablum, pa- I'm probably even like saying oatmeal it. or something, maybe. Yeah, it might be oatmeal. But okay, so basically, Pablum is a processed cereal for infants, originally marketed by the Mead Johnson Company in 1931. So yeah, it's I guess it's a food of the time. An occasional soft boiled egg and liquids. Her father, or her father, or when coursed, her brother spooned. F- um, food into her mouth as quickly as possible and if she, if Jeannie choked and if she choked or could not swallow fast enough the person feeding her rubbed her face in her food what the <laughs> these were normally the only times he allowed his wife to be with Jeannie although she could not feed Jeannie herself Jeannie's mother claimed her husband always fed um, Jeannie three times a day, but also said that Jeannie sometimes risked a beating by making noise when hungry, leading researchers to believe he often refused to feed her. In early 1972, Jeannie's mother told researchers that at around 11 o'clock at night, when possible, she surreptitiously tried to give Jeannie additional food, causing Jeannie to develop an abnormal sleep pattern in which she slept from 7 to 11 p.m woke up for a few minutes, and fell back to back asleep for an additional six and a half hours. This pattern continued for several months after removal from captivity. Jeannie's father had an extremely low tolerance for noise, to the point of refusing to have a working television or radio in the house. He almost never allowed his wife or son to speak and viciously beat them if they did so without permission, particularly forbidding them to speak to or around Jeannie. Any conversation between them was therefore very quiet and out of Jeannie's earshot, preventing her from hearing any meaningful amount of language. Her father kept Jeannie's room extremely dark, and the only available stimuli were the crib, the chair, curtains on each of the windows, three pieces of furniture, and two plastic rain jackets hanging on the wall. On rare occasions, her father allowed her to play with plastic food containers, old spools of threads, TV guides with many of the illustrations cut out and the raincoats. The room had two almost entirely blacked out windows, one which her father left slightly open. Although the house was well away from the street and other houses, she could see the side of a neighboring house and a few inches of sky and occasionally heard environmental sounds or neighboring child practicing the piano. Throughout this time, Jeannie's father almost never permitted anyone else to leave the house, only allowing his son to go to and from school and requiring him to prove his identity through various means before entering. And to discourage disobedience, he frequently sat in the living room with a shotgun in his lap. That dude was ready to kill someone. He was. He was. He was just grieving. He was grieving in a very fucked up way, but it's because he... To be honest, I... I they think should have killed him. Yeah, probably they should have. 
Throughout this time, Jeannie's father kept detailed notes chronicling his mistreatment of his family and his efforts to conceal it. Jeannie's mother was passive by nature and almost completely blind by this time. Her husband continued to beat her and threatened to kill her if she attempted to contact her parents, close friends who lived nearby, or the police. Jeannie's father also forced his son into silence, giving him instructions on how to keep his father's actions secret and beating him with increasing frequency and severity. And as he got older, his father forced him to carry out progressively more of his abuse of Jeannie in the same manner. He felt completely powerless to do anything to stop it and feared severe retribution for attempting to intervene, and on multiple occasions tried to run away from the home. Jeannie's father convinced Jeannie would die by age 12 and promised that. If she survived past that age, he would allow his wife to seek outside assistance for her. But she has to make it to 12. Oh my God. Yeah. But he reneged when Jeannie turned 12 and her mother took no action for another year and a half. <coughs> Excuse me. In October 1970, when Jeannie was approximately 13 years and six months old, Jeannie's parents had a violent argument in which her mother threatened to walk out if she could not call her own parents. Her husband eventually relented, and later that day, she left with Jeannie when he was out of the house and went to her parents in Monterey Park. Jeannie's brother, by then 18 years of age, had already ran away from home and was living with friends. Around three weeks later, on November 4th, Jeannie's mother decided to apply for disability benefits for the blind in nearby Temple City, California, and brought Jeannie with her. But on account of her near blindness, Jeannie's mother accidentally entered the general social services office next door. The social worker who greeted them instantly sensed something was wrong when she saw Jeannie and was shocked to learn her true age. Having estimated from her appearance and demeanor that she was around six or seven years old and possibly autistic, after she and her supervisor questioned Jeannie's mother and confirmed Jeannie's age, they immediately contacted the police. Jeannie's parents were arrested and Jeannie became a ward of the court, and due to her physical condition and near total unsocialized state, a court order was immediately issued by Jeannie to be taken to the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. <clears throat> Upon Jeannie's admission to Children's Hospital, David Reigler, a therapist and University oh, of Southern California psychology professor, who was the chief psychologist at the hospital, and Howard Hansen, then the head shiny. of the psychiatry division and an early expert on child abuse, took direct control yeah, of Jeannie's care. The following day, they assigned physician James Kent, another early advocate for child abuse awareness, oh, true, to conduct true, the first yeah, examination of dead. Get out of there, at least. Most of the information doctors received on Jeannie's early life came from the police investigation into Jeannie's parents. Even after its conclusion, there were a large number of unresolved questions about Jeannie's childhood that subsequent research never answered. News of Jeannie reached major media outlets on November 17th, receiving a great deal of local and national attention, and the one photograph authorities released of Jeannie significantly fueled public interest in her. Although Jeannie's father refused to speak to police or the media, large crowds subsequently went to try to see him, which he reportedly found extremely difficult to handle. On November 20th, the morning before a scheduled court appearance on child abuse charges, he committed suicide by gunshot. 
was on shotgun and just a regular gun. It uh, the information I found it doesn't say, but yeah, pistol Pete or a fucking shotgun. It, I would say the shotgun. He probably blew his fucking head off with the shotgun. <clears throat> no, dude, he should. He should, he got a fucking easy death, man. He got it fucking easy. He just fucking, sure, sure. you know, he should. He, he should. Su- he should should suffer. This asshole should suffer. Police found two suicide notes. One intended for his son, which in part said, "Be a good boy. I love you," and one directed at police. One note. Sources conflict as to which contain the declaration. The world will never understand. Those were his last words. After Jeannie's father committed suicide, authorities and hospital staff exclusively focused on Jeannie and her mother. Jeannie's brother said his mother soon began um, dedicating all of her love and attention to Jeannie, and he left Los Angeles. At the request of Hansen, attorney John Minor, an acquaintance of Hansen, represented Jeannie's mother in court. She told the court that the beatings from her husband and her near-total blindness had left her unable to protect her children. Charges against her were dropped, and she received counseling for children from Children's Hospital. Hansen was her therapist's direct supervisor. So, you know, that's... I mean, I don't really want to get into all of what they did to Gina. Oh, really? It's basically a bunch of, like, around. all the like, things that they like did to the, her and experimented on her to try to help her because a bunch of linguists came and tried yeah. to help Jeannie speak. Um, and I believe she went to a foster home. Okay, here it is. Um, so in June of 1971... Jean Butler obtained permission to take Jeannie on day trips to her home in Country Club Park, Los Angeles. Near the end of the month after one of these trips, Butler told the hospital that she might have contracted um, rubella. And rubella is, excuse me, rubella, also known as German measles of three-day measles or three-day measles, is an infection caused by the rubella virus. This disease is often mild with half of people not realizing that they are infected. A rash may start around two weeks after exposure and last for three days. And I believe that's a fairly common um, like disease among children that frequent like foster homes and stuff like that. Oh, really? <clears throat> yeah. Because they're always around. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Like yeah, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> to which Jeannie would have been exposed. Hospital staff were reluctant to give foster custody to Butler and were very skeptical of her story, strongly suspecting she had concocted it as part of a bid to take over as Jeannie's guardian and primary <laughs> caretaker, but decided that placing Jeannie in an isolation ward at the hospital could potentially be highly damaging to her social and psychological development. So they agreed to temporarily oh, quarantine her in best. Butler's home. I love that Butler, kid. who was childless, unmarried, and at the time living alone, subsequently petitioned for foster custody yeah, of Jeannie. And despite the hospital's objections, authorities extended Jeannie's stay while they considered the matter. Soon after moving in with Butler, no, Jeannie started showing like the first signs of reaching puberty, making a dramatic oh, improvement God. in her overall physical health, no, and definitively putting her past I'm Lenberg's proposed <laughs> critical period for language acquisition. Butler continued to observe and document Jeannie's hoarding, in particular noting that Jeannie collected and kept dozens of containers of liquid in her room. 
Although she could not discern the reason of Jeannie's intense fear of cats and dogs, after witnessing it firsthand, Butler and the man she was dating, who was a retired University of Southern California professor and psychologist, tried to help her overcome it by watching episodes of the television series Lassie with her and giving her a battery-powered toy dog. Butler wrote that Jeannie could eventually tolerate fenced dogs, but that there was no progress with cats. <laughs> she hated cats. Oh, yeah, and you have cats, right? That's good. I, I just feel like cats are just easy to take care of because they kind of take care of themselves. You don't have to walk them. You just have to feed them. <laughs> Why do you buy that six hundred dollar uh, litter box? Did you did you ever see that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have to clean it. It, but it's like six hundred dollars. <laughs> so in Butler's journal, she wrote that she had gotten Jeannie to stop attacking herself when angry and had taught Jeannie to instead express her anger through words or by hitting objects. Butler also claimed that shortly after moving in with her, Jeannie had become noticeably more talkative and that she had made substantial progress with her language acquisition. In an early August letter to Jay Shirley, she wrote that the man she was dating had also noticed and commented on the improvement in her language. Jeannie's incognizance gradually improved until, by the end of her stay, she was she was almost entirely continent. That's good. Yes. So she she's doing. I guess she's at this time she was doing okay, but um, I don't want to give it away. But unfortunately, her story doesn't end that well okay. <laughs> i just basically ruined it <laughs> so genie's mother continued to visit genie and around the time genie moved in with butler genie's mother received corrective cataract surgery which restored much of her vision during genie's stay butler had the man she was dating move in with her believing that authorities would view her pending foster application more favorably if she offered a two-parent home However, Butler began to strenuously resist visits from the researchers, who she felt overtaxed Jeannie and began disparagingly referring to them as the Jeannie team, a nickname which stuck. Butler particularly seemed to dislike James Kent and Susan Curtis, preventing both from visiting during the latter part of Jeannie's stay, and also had severe, several disagreements with Riggler. Although he said their disputes were never as personal or as heated as she portrayed them. Researchers believe Butler had good intentions for Jeannie, but criticized Butler's unwillingness to work with them and thought she negatively affected Jeannie's care and the case study. They strongly contested Butler's claims of pushing Jeannie too hard, contending that she enjoyed the tests and take breaks at will, and both Curtis and Kent empathetically denied Butler's accusations towards them. The research team viewed Butler as personally troubled, noting her long-standing and widely known reputation for combativeness among co-workers and superiors. Several of the scientists, including Curtis and Howard Hansen, recalled Butler openly stating that she hoped Jeannie would make her famous. And Curtis... Oh my god. Yeah, and Curtis especially remembered Butler repeatedly proclaiming her intent to be the next Ann Sullivan. I have no idea who that is, so let's look up who Ann Sullivan is. <laughs> I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> Johanna Mansfield Sullivan Macy, better known as Ann Sullivan, was an American teacher best known for being the instructor and lifelong companion of Helen Keller. See, and that's the sad part. That's the sad part. There's a joke on, fa there's a joke on Family Guy where... Um, 
where it's it's the person who basically taught Helen Keller. They're like, do you know like the I think Family Guy is like, oh, that's just like Ann Sullivan, or like I think Peter goes like, oh my god, now I know what Ann Sullivan must feel like, and then I think Ann Sullivan looks in the camera and she goes. You don't know who I am, don't you? <laughs> I'm the one that fucking helped Helen Keller. Oh god, I don't, I don't think I've seen that episode. <clears throat> so that's see, I even learned that. So I knew of like I knew there's a person who taught Helen Keller. I just never knew their name. Wow, and that's the sad part is she's like she never really gets the recognition. Only Helen Keller does. <laughs> So in mid-August, California authorities informed Butler they had rejected her application for foster custody. The extent, if any, to which Children's Hospital influenced the decision is unclear. Reigler maintained several times that despite the scientists' objections, neither, neither the hospital nor any of its staff had intervened and said the authorities' decision surprised him. The Nova documentary on Genie However, states the rejection of Butler came partially on the hospital's recommendation. There is evidence many hospital authorities, including Hansen, felt Butler's ability to take care of her genie was inadequate, and hospital policy forbade any of its staff members from becoming foster parents of its patients. Butler herself believed the hospital had opposed her application, so Jeannie could be moved somewhere more um, conducive to research and wrote that Jeannie upon being told of the decision, was extremely upset and had said, no, no, no. So Jeannie, I guess, was pretty upset that she was leaving Butler. Um, I saw a documentary about this too, which is where I got the idea from this, um, for this topic. And it was a really good documentary. And it was on HBO. So I believe it's on YouTube. So if you guys want to check it out, go ahead and check it out. Um, What's it called? I want to say it's called The Little Girl Who Could Not Talk, I believe it's called. The Little Girl Who Could Not Talk, and they're about Jean. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's pretty much, basically what happens is after Butler, she went to another foster home where they still tried to progress with her, but when they were progressing with language with her and as she was getting older, she started reverting back to her feral state and she became very she she didn't want to cooperate with the researchers because maybe butler did have you know some type of connection with her but basically going to her adult life um so in 1979 when Jeannie turned 18 her mother stated that she wished to care for her and in mid of 1975 the regulars decided to end their foster parenting and agreed to let Jeannie move back in with her mother at her childhood home john minor remained Jeannie's legal guardian and the regulars offered to continue assisting with Jeannie's care and despite the the nim h grant ending curtis continued to conduct regular testing and observations while living together, Jeannie's mother found many of Jeannie's behavior, especially her lack of self-control, very distressing. And after a few months, the task of caring for Jeannie by herself quickly overwhelmed her. She then contacted the California Department of Health to find care for Jeannie, which David Ragler said she did without his or Mary Lynn's knowledge. And in the latter part of 1975, authorities transferred Jeannie to the first of what would become a succession of foster homes. 
The environment in Jeannie's new placement was extremely rigid and gave her far less access to her favorite objects and activities, and her caretakers rarely allowed her mother to visit. Soon after she moved in, they began to subject her to extreme physical and emotional abuse, resulting in both incontinences and constipation resurfacing and causing her to revert to her coping mechanism of silence. The, in the incident with the strongest impact occurred when they severely beat her for vomiting and told her that if she did it again, they would never let her see her mother, making her terrified of opening her mouth for fear of vomiting and facing more punishment. As a result, she was extremely frightened of eating or speaking, and she became extremely withdrawn and almost exclusively relied on sign language for communication. During this time, Curtis was the only person who had worked with Jeannie to have regular contact with her and continued to conduct weekly meetings to continue her testing. And she noted that the extreme deterioration in Jeannie's condition, she quickly stated petition, she quickly started petitioning to have Jeannie taken out of her home. But Curtis said that both she and social services had a difficult time contacting John Meyer, only succeeding after several months. In late April 1977, with assistance from David Reigler, Minor removed um okay, Minor removed her from this <clears throat> location. Be <clears throat> no, excuse me. Because of Jeannie's previous treatment, Minor and David Reigler arranged for her to stay at Children's Hospital for two weeks, where her condition moderately improved. Authorities then placed Jeannie in another foster home, where she did fairly well, but in mid-December 1977, the arrangement very suddenly ended. Through the end of the month into early January, Jeannie lived in a temporary setting, after which authorities put her in another foster home. During this time, Curtis wrote to Minor that Jeannie did not understand the reasons she was moving and believed it was her fault for not being a good enough person, and said the frequency with which her living arrangements changed further dramatized her and caused continued developmental regression. So currently... Um, Jeannie is a ward of the state of California and is living in an undisclosed location in Los Angeles. In May of 2008, ABC News reported that someone who spoke to them under condition of anonymity had hired a private investigator who located Jeannie in 2000. According to the investigator, she was living a simple lifestyle in a small private facility for mentally underdeveloped adults and appeared to be happy and she only spoke a few words but could still communicate fairly well in sign language. The news That's crazy because 2000 is like only 18 or 19 years ago. Mm -hmm. Not even that long. It's crazy. Yes. The news stories also reported that Jeannie's mother died of unspec unspecified natural causes at the age of 87 in 2003 and featured the only public interview that Jeannie's brother, who was living in Ohio, gave about either his or Jeannie's lives. <clears throat> he told reporters that since living in Los Angeles area, he had visited Jeannie and their mother only once in 1982 and, and refused to watch or read anything about Jeannie's life until just prior to the interview, but said he had recently heard Jeannie was doing well. A story by journalist Rory Carroll in the Guardian, published in July of 2016, reported that Jeannie still lived in state care and that her brother died in 2011, and said that despite repeated efforts, Susan Curtis 
have been unable to renew contact with Genie. So that is the story of Genie. Uh, no, I thought that shit was crazy and kind of like disturbing. Well, obviously disturbing and sad, but it's just like, for me, it's just like, I can't process that someone has the capability and willingness to do that to someone, especially like their own child. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's fucked up and like crazy and so like, it's too real. It's too real. That's why I'm comfortable with knowing her as a werewolf. As werewolves don't exist. So well. I'll, I'll be okay with the supernatural side, but man, that whole like actual realness to it is just like who who's to say like in the future the mom could be one of our daughters. She ends up in the, in our, the worst relationship that we don't know about, and something crazy happens like this, where she, like our daughter is the abused wife of some crazy fucked up dude. Oh yeah, I get what you're saying. So like your daughter or my daughter, for that matter, could grow up to be somebody's like a, a victim of abuse and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, that is a very scary thoughts that we live in. That's why this shit freaks me out. That's why. I'll just deal with werewolves because they're not real. They're just gay. <laughs> but what if you found out tomorrow that werewolves are real? Oh, God. <laughs> that means aliens are real and fucking vampires and other crazy shit that scares the fuck out of me. <laughs> killer fucking clowns are probably real. Dude, killer clowns are cool. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it is definitely interesting. It's just, like I said, scary to hear about and very disturbing and sad. Yeah, we live in a sick, sad world and like i don't know world is that we live in is just full of monsters but uh thanks for joining me on this little segment of uh this case i spoke of so uh stay tuned uh listeners as we're gonna go to the next segment which is this week in crime unfortunately my co-host ripsaw 710 is not gonna be joining me on that segment but the good news is that we will be bringing back strange talk strange talk Talk nerdy to me. <laughs> yes, talk nerdy to me. We'll be bringing back talk nerdy to me. Uh, so be you know, stay tuned for an e- for an episode. And if you don't, if you haven't yet, you can follow the talk nerdy to me podcast. It's on social media. It's on Instagram. So look for that us. Insta slam. Yeah, that insta slam. So look for us at uh, what is it? Anyways, I don't even remember what it is because we don't use it Fuck anymore. I <laughs> okay, so you can reach. <laughs> You can find us at Talk Nerdy to Me with the number two. So Talk Nerdy number two, me podcast. That's where you can find us. We're actually coming back. So you can go ahead and look us up on there. So stay tuned for episode. I will be releasing the episode that we record um, on Strange Talk so that way you guys can get a taste and see if you like it or if you don't. So, you know, whatever. All right. Whatever. All right. (laughs) All right. Peace. Laters. So that was the case of Jeannie. Jeannie was not her actual name. It was just her name was not actually her actual name was not publicly known. So, yeah, her case is pretty disturbing and amazing at the same time. And uh, without much further ado, let's get into this week in crime. So this first article comes from the Huffington Post. Um a family in Salinas, California might be ready to deliver a tongue lashing to the prowler, their security camera caught licking their doorbell for three hours. Sullivan Dunnigan told local station KION-TV over the weekend the security system alerted the family to strange movement in the early morning. I thought, boy, there's a lot of traffic. 
I go, five in the morning? My son doesn't get home till 6 a.m. Well, then who the heck is that? Dunnigan said. She was even more shocked when she watched the video. Hours of a male trespasser licking the doorbell. I thought, oh boy, that is just weird. The tongue-wagging trespasser didn't stop there. Police said he was also he also was caught on video appearing to urinate on the front lawn. Police said the suspect, Roberto Daniel Arrero, 33, could face misdemeanor charges for petty theft and prowling. As of Tuesday afternoon, he remained at large. Dunnigan said there was no physical damage to her home, but her family spent the rest of the weekend sanitizing their doorbells, according to the station. <laughs> so that's that post. Uh, the next one comes from foxnews.com. Uh, I, I was actually sent this article by a listener, so thank you for sending me the news article. So if you have a news article that you come across that you find interesting or funny, go ahead and send it to me at Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram. I'll be more than welcome to, to feature it on the fucking on the episodes. Phoenix woman sent date 159,000 text messages and threatened to turn his kidneys into sushi. A Phoenix woman reportedly sent a man she met on a dating website more than 159,000 texts, including one stating that she wanted to turn his kidneys into sushi. According to police documents obtained by the Arizona Republic, Jacqueline Adez allegedly sent the man the messages over the span of nearly 10 months. She had originally been accused of sending him more than 65,000 text messages, but the number was reportedly more than double that. The arrest records listed the woman as showing signs of mental illness. Adez reportedly met the victim, a Paradise Valley man who was not identified, through Lexi, a dating site for millionaires. The two went on a date, but Adez allegedly became infatuated and continued to pursue him. However, the man, who is said to be the CEO of a skincare products company, was not interested in a relationship. The man called police in July of 2017 when he discovered Adez parked outside his home. After he called police, Adez allegedly started sending him threatening texts, including one that stated, I'd wear your fascia and the top of your fur skull in your hands and your feet, according to the Arizona Republic. I'd make sushi out of your kidneys and chopsticks out of your hand bones. Another text read. In another text, she said she wanted to wash herself in his blood. Oh, what would I do with your blood? I want to bathe in it, one text read, according to court documents. The man called police in April 2018 after surveillance footage from his home showed Adez taking a bath in his tub while he was away on a trip. Paradise Valley Police arrested Adez and also discovered a large butcher knife in her vehicle. She was later charged with first-degree criminal trespassing of a residential structure. Adez was released from custody but failed to appear in court. She reportedly showed up at the man's place of employment in Scottsdale in May and said she was his wife but was escorted from the building by officers. She was arrested at her apartment complex on May 8th after failing to appear to multiple court hearings. During interrogation, Adez claimed she would never hurt the man, saying, Something came over me when sending the threatening text. When asked if she believed the texts were normal, she said she didn't. No, I don't think anything I say is normal. I understand now, Adez reportedly told police. She allegedly said she understood that the man did not want to be with her despite thousands of texts. 
It's okay if that's how he feels, she reportedly said. Somebody else should love him. He has so much love, so much to love. He's so cute. I can't believe I scared him. Adez is currently being held at Maricopia County Jail with no bond. She has pleaded not guilty to charges of stalking and criminal trespassing. Her trial is slated to begin in February. This next uh, article comes from caperworld.com. It's a short article, but I thought it was interesting. Authorities in Florida said a fisherman reeled in a package that turned out to be filled with up to 60 pounds of suspected cocaine. The Monroe County Sheriff's Office said a fisherman was returning from Elsa Romada in the Florida Keys when he spotted a bale under a dock Saturday morning. The fisherman used a gaff and a net to pull the package into his boat and he determined it was filled with an unidentified white powder. Sheriff's deputies and U.S. Border Patrol investigators responded and discovered the bale contained 25 plastic-wrapped packages of what is believed to be cocaine. The packages were turned over to federal authorities. This happens fairly regularly, about once or twice every year. Sheriff's Office spokesman Adam Linhart told CNN, We live in the part of the country where it washes up on the Florida Keys. So that's that article. Uh, this next article comes from the Los Angeles Times. This one is a bay. A woman jogging in a Bay Area park was bitten by the owner of a dog who also attacked the jogger. The jogger was in was in Anthony Chabot Regional Park in Castro Valley when a dog attacked her at about 10:30 a.m. on Thursday, and she had to defend herself with pepper spray. The East Bay Regional Police um, Park. Regional Park District Police Department said. The woman later came across the dog's owner, another woman, who tackled and punched her multiple times. As the victim attempted to push her assailant off her, police said, she was bitten on her forearm by the female, causing significant wounds. Elma Kowalader, 19, of Oakland, was arrested Friday by police with the East Bay Regional Park District. She was Booked on suspicion of battery with serious bodily injury, false imprisonment with violence and robbery for allegedly taking the jogger's pepper spray. It's unclear whether Cadwallader has an attorney. This next article comes from caperworld.com as well. It's a brief article as well. But this one is a South Carolina teacher allegedly bragged to colleagues that she couldn't control herself when she had sex with two students at a boozed fueled party hosted with another co-worker. New, te- new details have emerged after Brittany Wetzel, 28, and Akina Andrews, 23, were arrested in April for allegedly throwing students a spring break party in Ladies Island. Wetzel, a Battery Creek high school teacher, reportedly searched online before the party. Can teachers get in trouble for sleeping with former students? She told friends that she couldn't wait until graduation so she could have one of the teen's beautiful babies, according to the Island Packet newspaper. But before the student could get his diploma, Wetzel invited him and three other teens on April 9th to her home for drinking games, according to officials. Andrews, who also taught at Battery Creek High School, was also at the party. The teachers are accused of supplying beer, wine, and tequila to the teens. Wetzel allegedly had sex with two of the students well at the party. Though both were the age of consent, it's illegal for teachers to have sexual relations with students under South 
Carolina law. In a group text with colleagues, Wetzel allegedly boasted a few hours later about the sexual encounter. A third co-worker in the group chat reported the incident to police and the two partying teachers were arrested according to officials. I just cannot speak today. Wetzel was charged April 16th with sexual battery and transfer of beer or wine for an underage person's consumption. Andrews turned herself in to authorities the same day and was charged with providing alcohol to minors. So these sex-crazed teachers are, weren't, weren't around when I was in high school, I'll tell you that. Or maybe they were, they just didn't get caught. Anyways, this next article comes from the Huffington Post as well. <laughs> so here's this one. An Idaho science teacher who made national headlines after feeding a sick puppy to a snapping turtle in front of students was found not guilty of animal cruelty on Friday. Robert Crossland, a teacher at Preston Junior High School in the city of Preston, never disputed that he fed the puppy to his classroom turtle back in March. Crossland and his defense contended that the incident was a humane act of mercy toward the puppy, which he said was very ill and near death. He said, I honestly thought I was doing the right thing by putting it out of its misery. In a recorded interview played during his two-day trial, the teacher was facing one charge of misdemeanor animal cruelty. Crossland said that he had the sick puppy because his son, Mario Crossland, had gotten the animal from a local farmer whose dog had given birth and believed the puppies were taxing the mother's health. According to East Idaho News, Mario Crossland testified that the puppy was very sick and refused to eat, and he believed that the dog's death was imminent. That's when Robert Crossland decided he would feed the puppy to one of his classroom animals. The feeding happened after the school day was over in the presence of three students who were in the classroom. The mother of the two the mother of two of the boys had defended the teacher's actions earlier this year, and the students testified during the trial they had no issue with what happened. According to their testimony per East Idaho News, Crossland first attempted to feed the puppy to a python, which did not eat the puppy. The teacher then placed the puppy in the snapping turtle's tank, where the canine briefly swam before the turtle dragged it to the bottom of the tank, drowned it, and ate it. The students who were present all testified in court that they did not have any issue with Crossland feeding the puppy to the turtle. The attention that the incident garnered also ultimately led to the death of the snapping turtle, which is an invasive species in Idaho, which is an invasive species in Idaho for which Crossland did not have the proper permit. After hearing about what happened in March, the Idaho State Department of Agricultural seized and killed the turtle. A jury came back with a not guilty verdict after deliberating for about half an hour. After the trial, Crossland expressed gratitude to the local community for supporting him. He remains a teacher at Preston Junior High School. So what do you guys think? Do you guys think he should have been charged with animal cruelty? Or do you think it's okay because the puppy was going to die anyways? <clears throat> so this last and final article for this week in crime is police in Phoenix are investigating. This one comes from cbsnews.com. Police in Phoenix are investigating a sexual assault at a nursing facility after a patient in a vegetative state became pregnant and gave birth. Police have been stationed outside Hacienda Healthcare over the last few days. It is now under criminal investigation as state investigators try to determine how the woman got pregnant. Parents of other patients inside Hacienda Healthcare are furious and demanding answers. A lot of people are mad, my family included, said a father, Gary Launder. My heart hurts. My chest hurts. 
I haven't been able to sleep good at night because of what occurred here, a mother, Angela Gomez, said. Their concern for the safety of their loved ones after a female patient who's been in a vegetative state for 14 years gave birth. Everybody was up in shock, said another mother, Karina um, Sensina. Sensina's 22-year-old daughter, Jasmine, has been a patient at Hacienda Healthcare for about two years. Now, Sessina is not living, leaving her side. Trust has been broken and severe and severed completely, Sessina said. Sources familiar with the case tell CBS Phoenix affiliate KPHO the woman has been a patient at Hacienda Healthcare for more than a decade after a near-drowning incident left her incapacitated. A source tells KPHO she delivered a healthy baby boy on December 29th, but none of the staff inside the clinic knew the patient was pregnant until she began moaning shortly before going into labor. While privacy laws limit video surveillance in healthcare centers, Cecina said there needs to be more cameras. She said she has not seen cameras in the hallways, rooms, or at a nurse's station. A federal database that tracks nursing homes reveals Hacienda Healthcare has an overall rating of one out of five stars, according to state records. A staff member was fired in 2013 after making inappropriate sexual comments about patients. Hacienda Healthcare declined our request for an interview, but in a statement said it's cooperating with law enforcement and conducting a comprehensive internal review of processes, protocols, and people to ensure that every single resident is safe. Even though now it is a little bit better, but this should have been done prior to this incident happening, Cecina said. Another big question being asked is how could staff here not known a patient was pregnant up until labor? Police have made no arrests, and it is unclear if they've identified any suspects. A source tells KPHO investigators are now considering asking for warrants for people's DNA samples. A spokesman for Arizona's governor calls the situation deeply troubling and promised a new focus on patient safety. So that is the last article for this week in crime. I hope you guys enjoyed both the story of the feral child known as Jeannie and you enjoyed the articles that I have for you today on this week in crime. So if you guys have any interesting news articles and you guys want to send them my way, you can do so by either sending me a DM on Instagram at strange talk podcast or sending me them by email at strange talk podcast at outlook.com. Uh, So thank you for joining me on this week in crime. Uh, Be sure to subscribe and rate if you can. That helps me out a ton. If not, if you can't rate, then go ahead and just spread the word of Strange Talk if you enjoy the show and you want to be and you want to have more of your friends join the community of Strange Talk podcast. Go ahead and do that. That helps me out a ton. So till next time, a new episode will be available on Monday. So till next time, stay strange.